middle of the 19th century and is most closely associated with the names of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. In their Communist Manifesto of 1848, Marx and Engels wrote that the theory of the communists may be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property. Engels claimed that his friend had formulated a scientific theory that demonstrated the inevitable collapse of societies based on class distinctions. Although throughout history there have been sporadic attempts to realize the communist ideal, the first determined effort to this effect by using the full power of the state occurred in Russia between 1917 and 1991. The founder of this regime, Vladimir Lenin, saw a propertyless and egalitarian society emerging from the dictatorship of the proletariat that would eliminate private property and pave the way for communism. We shall trace the history of communism in this sequence, both because it makes sense logically and because it is in this manner that it has evolved historically. First, the idea then the plan of realization, and finally the implementation. But we will concentrate on the implementation, because the ideal and the program, taken by themselves, are relatively innocuous, whereas every attempt to put them into practice, especially if backed by the full power of the state, has had enormous consequences. Chapter 1 Communist Theory and Program The idea of a classless, fully egalitarian society first emerged in classical Greece. Ancient Greece happened to have been the first country in the world to recognize private property in land and to treat land as a commodity, and hence it was the first to confront the social inequalities that result from ownership. Hesiod, a contemporary of Homer, 7th century B.C., in the poem Works and Days, extolled a mythical golden age when people were not driven by the shameful lust for gain, when there was an abundance of goods for all to share, and mankind lived in perpetual peace. The theme of the golden age resounded in the writings of the Roman poets Virgil and Ovid, Ovid spoke of the time when the world knew nothing of boundary posts and fences. The ideal acquired its earliest theoretical formulation in the writings of Plato. In the Republic, speaking through Socrates, Plato saw the root of discord and wars in belongings. Such differences commonly originate in a disagreement about the use of the terms mine and not mine, his and not his. And is not that the best ordered state in which the greatest number of persons apply the terms mine and not mine in the same way to the same thing? In the laws, Plato envisioned not only a society in which people shared all worldly possessions, as well as their wives and children, but one in which the private and individual is altogether banished from life, 
and things which are by nature private, such as eyes and ears and hands, have become common, and in some way see and hear and act in common. And all men express praise and blame, and feel joy and sorrow on the same occasions. Aristotle, Plato's pupil, questioned whether such a communist utopia would bring about social peace on the grounds that people who hold things in common are more prone to quarrel than those who hold them in private ownership. Furthermore, he argued, the root of social discord lies not in material belongings, but in the yearning for them. It is not possession, but the desires of mankind which require to be equalized. There exists a widespread but false notion that socialism and communism are merely up-to-date, secular versions of Christianity. As the 19th century Russian philosopher Vladimir Solovyov has pointed out, the difference is that whereas Jesus urged his followers to give up their own possessions, the socialists and communists want to give away the possessions of others. Moreover, Jesus never insisted on penury. He merely counseled it as easing the way to salvation. St. Paul's well-known saying about money is usually misquoted. He said not that money is the root of all evil, but that love of money is. In other words, greed. St. Augustine asked rhetorically, Is gold not good? And answered, Yes, it is good, but the evil use good gold for evil, and the good use good gold for good. The fathers of the church and later Catholic theologians took a pragmatic view of ownership. According to St. Augustine, a propertyless world was possible only in paradise, that golden age which mankind had lost because of original sin. Given human imperfection, Property is moral if used wisely and employed for charitable purposes. The Catholic Church not only did not preach poverty, but disowned and sometimes persecuted those who did. The founders of Protestantism, notably Calvin, viewed wealth as a positive good and a sign of divine grace. But the notion of the Golden Age never disappeared from European consciousness, the early maritime explorers ventured on their journeys, inspired not merely by the quest for El Dorado and other mythical places in which gold was reputed to be as plentiful as dust, but also by the desire to find the islands of terrestrial paradise, legends of which circulated in medieval Europe. And when they first landed in the Americas and saw naked Indians, they were convinced they had found them. For was not lack of shame the very mark of life before the fall? If the natives indeed lived in paradise, this meant also that they knew nothing of property. Columbus on his return reported that the aborigines were guileless and never refused anything which they possess if it be asked of them. On the contrary, they invite anyone to share it. He was uncertain whether or not they knew private property, but noted, In that which one had, all took a share, especially of eatable things. 
These naive first impressions soon yielded to more realistic appraisals of American Indians, but not before giving rise to a utopian literature that has ever since become a permanent feature of Western thought. Because the vision of a propertyless society is central to virtually all utopias, it could emerge only in societies in which private property was prevalent. This until recent times meant, in effect, Europe and regions populated by Europeans. Thomas Moore's archetypal utopia, described in the book of that name he published in 1516, was, some scholars believe, inspired by the travel accounts of Columbus and other early explorers. Far from the happy place that the modern usage of the adjective utopian conveys, it was an austere and regimented community where all citizens dressed alike and lived in identical houses, where no one could travel without permission, and where private discussion of public affairs carried the death penalty. Money was abolished. Gold and silver served to make chamber pots. The common theme of subsequent utopias was, as in Moore's, both the absence of private wealth and the coercion of individuals by the community at large. Utopia, both in theory and practice, signifies the individual's subservience to authority, which compels him to do what he is disinclined to do of his own free will. It needs to be stated at this point that the ideal of a propertyless golden age is a myth, the fruit of longing rather than memory because historians, archaeologists, and anthropologists concur that there never was a time or place when all productive assets